and we're looking at British revivals through the ages. Um, next month, I think we'll, we'll go back to uh, the scriptures, and there we will probably, I haven't made a decision yet, but probably we'll be looking at the topic of spiritual warfare and how that operates in our lives. But we're spending some time, it's based on my book, Land and Hope and Glory, British Revivals Through the Ages, and these are just chapters and snapshots of revivals that took place in Britain, uh, beginning in the uh, Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and right up to the Hebridean revival of last century. There are different parts of the country, revivals in Scotland, England, Wales, and, and Ireland, and um, the reason that we're doing this is that it's important to know church history. It's important to know God's history. And when we're facing things in Great Britain today, uh, we shouldn't just think that we're the only generation that ever existed or matters, because God works throughout the ages. He's got a purpose for each generation, but he doesn't start all over again with a new generation. So here's a new generation, God starts all over again. Here's a new generation, God starts all over again. It doesn't really work like that. God has a purpose for each generation, but he works through the generations. So to properly understand ourselves as Christians living in Great Britain, whatever nation we may have come from, we are Christians in Great Britain for as long as we're here, we need to find a context. How has God worked through the church in Great Britain in the past? What were its strengths and its weaknesses? We, we, we haven't just appeared on the scene. Uh, God has got his purposes. And to understand what God wants to do with us, it is also important to understand how he was de dealt with us in the past. We're facing great challenging times here in Britain today and Europe today. And, and the church is under pressure like it hasn't been for a number of generations and decades and uh, it's important for us to realize that this isn't the first time that this has happened in the history of the British Isles, that often the church has been under extremely great pressure um, of forces that were seeking to destroy it, and this has happened a number of times in the history of Great Britain, and each time it's happened, God has raised up a generation of revivalists to reverse the flow. Sometimes he's done it very quickly. Sometimes it's taken generations for it to, to take place. So when we hear what's happened in the past, it isn't meant to be... I'm not really a historian. Um, what I'm trying to do is just give you a flavor of some of these great moves of God. Maybe you've heard of things like we're going to talk today about George Fox and the Quakers. Maybe you've heard of the Quakers. Maybe you have a faint understanding of who they were. And so next, we're also going to be looking at the, at the Methodists and uh, the Salvation Army. And um, it's important for us to recognize that God moved very powerfully in these movements of God. And we can take comfort from hearing the stories, encouragement from hearing the stories, and also through seeing these, we can say, hey, you know, maybe God is going to do something with us. Maybe there's a chapter that's not written yet in this book, and maybe we're going to write the chapter. So I'm not expecting you to understand everything. I'm not going to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. I'm just giving you a flavor. This is what this book is about. I found that when I was studying revivals way back in the year 2000, that you would either get very thin books on a revival that said nothing, and most of it 
a lot of it you couldn't trust. It was just somebody spouting off ideas. And you thought, is this really true? Or you'd get these big, thick books. And you'd have to go through page after page and chapter after chapter and try and get the nuggets and the gems and the diamonds of, of what was happening in them. So what I tried to do is take out the best bits, if I can put it that way, and put them in thin uh, chapters so that you could go through the book and as we're going through these sessions and just get a flavour of what happened through these moves of God. And then should one particular move of God really interest you, well, you can always go a little bit deeper into that. It's important that we at least have an awareness of the things that God has done in our nation. So that's in way of introduction. Well, today uh, we can start our PowerPoint. We're going to have a look at George Fox, the unshakable shaker, who was the founder of the Quakers. We're going to look at his life. We're going to look about, about how God moved with the Quakers in, a very diff, in one of the most difficult times in our nation's history. We're going to see what arose of it, what God brought into the church through it, and, uh, and how it, even today uh, we're being affected by what God did in those days. I've got a quote here um, to, to start with. And uh, uh, Rufus Jones said, that George Fox is the real is the first real prophet of the English Reformation. We're going to be coming back to that in a moment because that's important. And then uh, George Fox himself said, as he was looking at the state of England during this period, he said, "And I saw the harvest white and the seed of God lying thick in the ground." as ever did wheat that was sown outwardly, and none to gather it. And for this I mourned with tears. He looked out there at the nation and saw that there was a harvest that was ripe. Uh, uh, and he was, had a heart of evangelist, but he also saw that nobody was, was bothering to gather it in. Now, George Fox, who is the founder of the Quakers, or the Society of Friends, as they're known, was born in 16... 24. And uh, he was born and lived in a very turbulent time. Uh, he lived and ministered during the time of the great English Civil War, 1642 to 51. And, and those were really, really bad times. I mean, families were fighting against one another. There were the royalists on the one hand under King Charles I, and then on the other side, you had the parliamentarians under uh, Oliver, eventually under Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans. And um, what was going on was literally a war and a battle over who ultimately ruled England and what type of Christianity was going to be sponsored in England. Charles I, the king, was a Roman Catholic, and he believed in the divine right of kings, and that nobody could challenge his kingship and his rule. And then we had uh, Parliament. We know the Houses of Parliament down the road. And they were more, mainly Protestants. They'd been touched by the Reformation of Luther. They'd gone back to the Scriptures for themselves. And they believed in the priesthood of all believers. And they, they, they believed in, in the conscience. And, and they believed that to rule the nation, that the king was accountable to them and accountable to the people for his actions. This is where we get the cavaliers and the roundheads. Now, eventually, Charles I was beheaded in 1649, and Oliver Cromwell became the Lord Protector 
of England. And these were, they were, these were terrible battles that took place up and down the country. Everywhere you went, were you for the king or were you for parliament? I mean, it was horrific times, terrible times of bloodshed, horror, religious divide. And um, on both sides of the religious divide, uh, there were some terrible acts done. Now, we're talking about the Puritans at this time and the Protestant Puritans. Um, Last week, we spent some time looking at John Knox, if you were with us, the great thundering Scot who brought the message of the Bible and Scripture into Scotland and Britain and was a champion of the Reformers. And, uh, and out, of, out of John Knox, who was really the first Puritan, and what was a Puritan? A Puritan was somebody who wanted to get back to the Scriptures and not just get back to the truth of Scriptures, but also wanted to practice that truth as closely as possible in their church services and in their lives. We looked at the Church of England at the time, and the Church of England, although uh, became uh, Reformed and Puritan, if you like, in theology, it didn't change many of the ways that it structured its church. And John Knox wanted a root and branch restructuring. That's what a Puritan is. Not just get back to the truths of the Scripture, but apply those truths in worship and in practice. Well, a hundred years or so later, what had taken place is a lot of the fire of John Knox had actually died out. The once radical Puritan movement was now becoming increasingly political and rigid, with some notable exceptions. Instead of enjoying a personal relationship with the Lord, they began to argue about minor doctrines and church services. Uh, They became focused on organization. And so England became split between Roman Catholicism and the king on one side, and in general, quite a harsh religious Protestant group on the other side. Yet in the midst of all this bloodshed that was going to be taking place, this religiosity, this cold outward conformity, and these wars that were taking place, the Holy Spirit began to move again in the mid-1600s. And during these terrible times, it's amazing how terrible times can come at the same time as the Holy Spirit moves in great power. Sometimes we think that when the Holy Spirit moves in great power, everything must be lovely. Everybody must be be in a great position. But often, things can be very bad and very good at the same time. You see this in times of revival. You see this in the book of Acts, which is the biblical model of revival. Things can be very good and very difficult at the same time. They can be the best of days and the worst of days all put together. I think that should burst some of our balloon bubble thinking where we we tend to think, oh, when revival comes, when God pours out his spirit in a strong way, everything's going to be okay and it'll be some sort of wonderland, some sort of utopia. Not at all. It doesn't work like that. Often the greatest light is at the time of the greatest darkness, but thank God the greatest light will overcome the greatest darkness. And it's a bit like that today. God is moving stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper in the church today, or 
parts of it, but also we see that the darkness is getting thicker. All of these are signs that God is about to break out in unusual ways. Well, it was the same time with George Fox. Um, People were reading the Bible for themselves, the King James Bible had come out, and, and, and people were saying, hey, you know, we're not interested in, these, in the traditions and superstitions of the Roman Catholic Church and the king, but others were saying, neither were we inter- interested in this cold, formal Puritanism that's about. We, we, we want to get back to God. We want to get back to, to the heart, heart of things. And so there were some new radical movements that took place during this time. We have the Anabaptists, what we call the Seekers and the Ranters. Now, these people, they were wanting to experience freedom in their religion and freedom with their relationship with God. They didn't want all this formalism and all these books and books and books on dead doctrine without a living experience with God. They had remembered the Lollards a few weeks ago. We looked in the 1300s at uh, Wycliffe and the Lollards and how Wycliffe was 200 years ahead of his time, sending his Lollard preachers up and down the country with little bits of scripture, preaching the gospel, and people meeting in woods and praying and singing. That's why they were called Lollards, which is a a German word for low murmuring, and and and, and worshipping God in, in a free, unorganized, restricted way. Well, new movements came, and I just sort of mentioned them, You can see behind me some of them. They look like Kensington Temple Pentecostals, don't they? Right there, dancing and and lifting their hands. And um, uh, these these people were were open to the Holy Spirit. They were believing in that the congregation should be released into ministry. They believed that women were able to preach, which was a huge thing at that time. And the Anabaptists, which will be very close in some ways to the Baptists today, uh, the Anabaptists believed in infant baptism. They said, hey, in, in, sorry, they didn't believe in infant baptism. They believed in adult baptism. They said no baby was baptized in the New Testament. It was always a believer's baptism and baptism in water. So they were baptizing um, adults. They were seeking to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit In fact, that when they spoke about infant baptism, they said it's as lawful to baptize a cat or a dog or a chicken as to baptize an infant. And they believed in a heart conversion. You must be born again. It didn't matter if you went to church or were part of this denomination or that denomination. They were concerned what was going on in the inside of people. Now, some Anabaptists were were so seeking God and so seeking the Holy Spirit that they went to some extremes. You'll see that some of these that we're talking about did go to extremes, but they went to an extreme because they were trying to deal with an extreme. And so when they reacted to the cold formalism of much of Puritanism, not all of it, and the superstition of Catholicism, and they said, no, we want a direct living relationship with God, as they reacted, some of them reacted too far, but we shouldn't dismiss them because of that. Often when revival comes, you'll find many things take place, and when revival and the Holy Spirit is poured out, sometimes people do go to an extreme. 
because they're not rooted in, in the word. Also, there was a group called the Seekers. And they were, as, as I said about the other, they were so distressed with the coldness of all brands of Christianity. In fact, they were so distressed about what they saw and the fighting and the arguing between the Puritans and the Catholics and that they said, look, at, when you look out at what's available today, they were thinking, they concluded there was no church in existence, no true church. And that they said, hey, you know, this is wrong. Puritanism is wrong. Uh, Catholicism is wrong. In fact, there hasn't been a real church on earth since the days of the apostles. That's quite radical. So they said, what we really need is the Holy Spirit to move like he did in the days of the apostles, like he came in the upper room. So what these seekers would do is they'd seek God. That's why they were called seekers. They would just meet together in a room, anywhere. No, it didn't have to be in a church building. People were addicted to church buildings in those days. But they would meet anywhere and they would sit in silence and they would wait for someone to be moved by the Holy Spirit to speak a word of prophecy, inspiration or encouragement, reacting against this cold, informal theology. And uh, they are recorded to have said this, Men ought to preach and exercise their gifts without study and premeditation and not think what they are to say till they speak, because it shall be given them in that hour that the Spirit shall teach them. There's no need of human learning or reading of authors for preachers, but all books and learning must go down. It comes from a want of the Spirit that men su write such great volumes. Can you sense their radical spirit? I mean, they've gone to an extreme, haven't they? I mean, what, what we should be doing is preparing and taking our heart to God and seeking the scriptures and preparing our sermons. But of course, when we stand up to give those sermons, that's when we need to be really dependent on the Holy Spirit. We're dependent on him to get, but, but let the Holy Spirit, you know, energize and, and move us. And, and often I can prepare a message, I hope under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But when I give it, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit will emphasize some things direct. Sometimes I go down a path I didn't expect to do. So it's not one or the other, but they, they had seen so much of this boring, cold, heartless theology with books and books and books that they reacted. And they went to the other extreme and said, don't even prepare your sermons. You know, it's interesting, later on, such a great uh, minister like Charles Spurgeon, a great minister, uh, of the gospel here in London in the 1800s, spoke to thousands and thousands and thousands, uh, often called one of the greatest preachers in living history. He used to train pastors and preachers, and as well as teaching them how to prepare their sermons, sometimes he would just give them a scripture and say, preach. What, without any preparation? And he would say, well, you also need to be ready in season and out of season. So he taught both. He, he taught strong study, strong preparation, but he also wanted to make sure that they didn't prepare so much that they weren't dependent on the instant movement of the Spirit in directing them. So I think that's quite interesting. There was a great thirst in these seekers, although they may have gone to an extreme, we can understand why. I mean, people were killing each other in, Christians, in Christ's name. A great thirst for the Holy Spirit. 
for freedom and liberty and ministry and devotions and worship. As you can see behind, they are lifting their hands. They're worshipping God. They're wanting to be spirit-filled. The final group, which are important because all of these groups had an effect on George Fox and therefore the Quakers to come. The final group that George Fox would have come across as a, as a young man were nicknamed the Ranters. And uh, they, they were really extreme. Um, and they, they, didn't, they wanted to rebel against all religious authority and doctrines. And um, in fact, they, they didn't want to have any authority at all or any system at all. What they saw, they hated so much, they rejected it totally. And they were called ranters because they, 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 would, they would work themselves up into esteem. They, they would be open to ecstatic experiences. And they would preach and they would prophesy. And so to people who weren't used to this type of freedom and trying to interact with the Holy Spirit, they were just a bunch of ranters. And that's why we get that phrase, you know, oh, he was just ranting on. Well, that comes from the name that was first given to the ranters. Now, I'm not saying that these groups, Anabaptist seekers or ranters, I am not claiming that everything that happened with them was from God. But something was from God. And so during this period where people are reaching out to the Spirit, many of them don't know how to reach out to the Spirit. They are, they, they are reacting violently to some terrible things that are going on. And so we've got to give them room to understand that, that they were trying to, it was hard to find a balance in such an unbalanced world at that time. Now, Fox's early life, he was uh, brought up in Leicestershire. His father and mother were both genuine Christians. His mother's ancestor was a Protestant martyr and so they'd come from the line of the, of, of the Lollards and Wycliffe's, interest, uh, uh, Wycliffe's influence in the 1300s. I mentioned to you one thing about when we look at these revivals, that they have a, a tremendous impact on later centuries. They, they don't just impact the culture and the generation that's around, but they have a habit of popping up, of, of having an influence of later generations. And so here, George Fox, um, his generations had come into contact with Lollards, had been Lollards. And so here he is, a product not just of his generation, of what God wants to do, but things that happened hundreds of years earlier were influencing what were happening then. You know, when we look at everything that we do, the way that we worship, the style of preaching or the methods of preaching that, that we do here at Kensington Temple... If you were to look and to find out where were the influences, even some of the hidden influences of why we do what we do in services and worship, in cell groups and in preaching and in teaching, and the focus is on this doctrine or that doctrine, you, you would find that some of those influences were centuries ago that have brought us to this place. As we are seeking to go back to the Bible, we're doing it in a context of other generations that also sought to go back to the Bible. And although they could learn from us, we can still also learn from them. So, he, uh, his father was a cobbler and leather worker, and even as a young boy, he was very sensitive and felt desperate for a relationship with the living God. His relatives thought that as a young boy he would become a minister in the Church of England. And he had a powerful experience at the age of 19 when he and some friends went into a pub 
And realizing as they began to do drinking games that they were going to get as drunk as they could, he left and went out. He couldn't sleep. He, was, he wasn't happy about what he had witnessed. And he walked up and down his bedroom as a 19-year-old crying out to God. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to George Fox and said this, You see how young people go together into sin and old people into the earth? You must forsake all, young and old. Keep out of all and be a stranger to all. This instruction to George Fox meant a separation and a consecration from the corrupt world of the Civil War and everything that I've already mentioned that was going on. He felt he had to separate himself from everything that was going on. And this was important because it wasn't a separation that would keep him away from his culture. It was a separation from the world around him in order that he could separate, consecrate, and then go back into that world and change it. This is something that we face as Christians every day. We're in the world, but we're not meant to be part of the world. And of course, the greatest problem in the church today is worldliness in Christians' lives. There's no doubt about it. We, we, you know, churches often, ministers and churches and Christians, reflect more of the world and society's values around them than perhaps they do of Scripture. And, um, you know, today, increasingly, if you are a New Testament believer, you're increasingly becoming a social heretic. Because, you are be- because the, the divide between the world in Great Britain today and New Testament Christianity is getting wider and wider. Intolerance is increasing. We are becoming social heretics. Our beliefs and soon our practices are unacceptable to, to the social uh, world today, our beliefs, in sex, uh, our beliefs about sexuality, our beliefs about marriage, our, our beliefs about family are literally social heresy today. And you know what people end up doing to heretics. And so he separated himself and uh, he spent some time in Lutterworth. Imagine that. Again, go back to Wycliffe a couple of weeks later. Lutterworth, just up the M1, I can't remember what junction, 12 or 13 or something just up the M1, that was where he sent out Wycliffe, all his Bible men in the 1300s and trained them. And, and that's where he had his Bible school. That, that's where, well, he went down there. He spent some time there. He must have looked and thought about Wycliffe and what Wycliffe had done. And that had an impact on his life, his evangelistic ministry. Uh, Fox travelled around. And as he travelled, he got more and more disturbed said right at the beginning that he's been called the first prophet of the English Reformation. And he had a prophet reaction and response to the terrible state of Christianity, its leaders, and the nation of England at the time. He didn't trust the so-called church ministers, but to be, as a young man as he went away, as he went around Britain and travelling, he would visit different ministers from different churches And he would ask them questions about God. And the more he did that, the more he became disappointed with the type of reactions that he got. He said, I understood that these men did not possess what they professed. He said this, I was about 
20 years of age when these attacks came upon me. And for some years I continued in that condition, in great trouble of heart. I went to many a priest for comfort, but found no comfort from them. Fox spent some time with the Baptists in London and found them tender people. One of Fox's favourite word, words was tender, as opposed to the hardness of heart during that time. Tender people were, to George Fox, those who were serious about seeking God for themselves. He was interested in a heart religion or faith rather than an outward conformity. When the civil wars began, Fox's parents hoped that he would join one of the regiments in the parliament, but he was heartbroken by what was going on in his own nation. And he continued, and he says himself, that he continued about a year in great sorrow and trouble and walked many nights by myself. I fasted much, walked abroad in solitary places for many days and often took my Bible and sat in hollow trees and lonesome places till night came on and frequently in the night walked mournfully about by myself for I was a man of sorrows in the time of the first workings of the Lord in me. God was doing a very, very deep work of the, in him. Someone might say he was suffering from deep depression, but they were depressing times. Maybe he was suffering more from a deep dose of reality and seeing what God was seeing and how what was going on was breaking God's heart was also breaking his heart. This is the ministry of a prophet, isn't it? To feel what God feels in order to speak what God thinks. And um, he began to, to, to meet some of the ranters and seekers and saw that there were people that were trying to, to, to focus on the supernatural work of God. And um, he, he began to fellowship with them. Sorry, just want to check I've got... I think I've, one of my pages has... Uh, out of order. Okay, great. As a young man, he came across a prophet, a well-known prophet, an accepted prophet amongst the people, called Brown. And he had an incredible experience with this man called Brown that I speak about in my book. He... Um, he was brought to see Brown on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, as Brown was dying, he began to prophesy over George Fox and prayed a blessing over him. When he played, prayed a blessing over George Fox, George Fox went down under the power of God. And for days, at times they thought he was dead. And for days, he was like paralyzed and under the power of God. It was like the mantle of this prophet had been thrown over him. That was what he would later talk about as being a baptism of power. It was the nearest thing to the day of Pentecost that he would experience. And when he got up and, and began to minister out of this powerful experience, of this prophetic experience that he had, he began to preach and he began to teach to whoever he would come across from village to village. And uh, people began to be drawn to his powerful preaching. 
and those that began to be drawn to him. At first, he called those that followed his message and agreed with him children of light. But they had a practice of the time of calling each other friends. And so they would call each other friends. How are you doing, friend? And so after a while, he began to call his ministry friends. And that's why we have the, the Quakers are also called the Society of Friends. They were called Quakers because Fox called upon a judge who was trying him for um, his preaching of the gospel. He called upon him to quake before God. And so the judge called them Quakers. But also Quakers was a phrase because often the power of God would fall in these meetings and people would shake under the power of God, quake under the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he believed. He began to preach the gospel and call people to holiness. Rufus Jones, in his autobiography of Fox, tells us, Fox believed that Christ came to destroy sin, and he stoutly held that when he ruled in a man, sin and dominion of it were done away. He believed that man could come into the condition Adam was before he fell. To use his own expression, one of his frequent challenges was to demand, demand that modern Christians should come into the same life and power of those who were in and who gave forth the scriptures. George Fox believed that there was power to get holy. Now, we can't go back to the way that we were before the fall. Not yet. That will take place at the resurrection when we're glorified. But he had this radical message in a, in a time of sin that people could be difficult. I mean, could be different. Fox would move in a word of knowledge about people's hearts and minister prophet, prophetically into their lives. The Holy Spirit gave him a vision of the nature of the lost. And um, the Holy Spirit said, and, and he said, I went back to Nottinghamshire and there the Lord showed me the natures of those things that were hurtful on the outside, that were within the hearts and minds of wicked men, the nature of dogs, swines, vipers of Sodom and Egypt, Pharaoh, Cain, Ishmael, Esau. The natures of these I saw within people. I cried to the Lord, saying, Why should I be seeing this? I was never addicted to these evils. And the Lord said that it was needful that I should have a sense of all conditions, or else how would I speak to all conditions. And in this I saw the infinite love of God. He had four basic revelations that he ministered out of. He believed in the new birth, you must be born again. He believed in the authority of scriptures. Uh, he, was, he spoke against steeple houses. In other words, he was against church buildings as being in some sense holy. And he believed in the leading of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned the baptism of power that he had. Um, they were Pentecostal in experience. Um, and, and, and some of the Quakers spoke in other tongues in their meetings, which is amazing when you think about that. Um, in uh, Edward Burroughs' uh, book, he says this. He speaks about a minister and a person who gave a testimony of being a fellow minister with Fox. And this is what this is the testimony of Edra Burroughs, who was a minister with Fox. He says, Whilst waiting upon the Lord in silence, as we often did for many hours together, with our hearts towards God, being stayed in the light of Christ from all fleshly motions and desires, 
we often received the pouring down of his spirit upon us, and our hearts were made glad, and our tongues loosed, and our mouths opened, and we spake with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance. And his Holy Spirit led us, which was poured upon sons and daughters, thereby things unutterable were made manifest, and the glory of the Father was revealed. George Fox had a miraculous ministry, so much so that he even wrote a book called The Book of Miracles, which unfortunately has been lost. But some of the record of his healings took place. I'll give you an example. When George Fox was ministering in the United States, well, it wasn't the United States of America at the time, but when he was ministering in America, he raised a man back to life. And here's the story in George Fox's own words. And so we came to, Sh to Shrewsbury, and we had men and women's meetings, which will be of great service in the keeping of the gospel order. There, and there a friend, John Jay, that was with me, went to try a horse and got on his back, and the horse ran and cast him on his head and broke his neck. And the people took him up dead and carried him a good way and laid him on a tree. And I came to him and, and felt on him and saw that he was dead. And I was pitying his family and him, for he was one that was to pass through the woods to Maryland. And I took him by the hair of his head. And his head turned like a cloth, it was so loose. And I threw away my stick and gloves and took his head in both my hands and set my knees against the tree, raised his head, and I did perceive it was not broken out that ways. And I put my hand under its chin and behind his head and raised his head two or three times with all my strength and brought it in. And I did perceive his neck began to be stiff and then he began to rattle and after to breathe. And the people were amazed, and I bid them have a good heart and carry him into the house. And they had set him by the fire, and I bid them to get some warm things and get him to bed. And after he'd been in a house a while, he began to speak and did not know where he had been. So that's pretty powerful to take some dead man's head and crash it into the neck three times until you feel it. I mean, it, 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 these were the miraculous. And there's, many, there's a few other examples of healings and miracles that, that, that are here in, here in the book. Well, the Quakers began to explode in the years 1653 and 54. House churches, what we would call cell groups today, begin to spring up all over the country in, and also soon in Wales and Scotland. After six years of preaching the gospel, George raised up more than 60 apostolic ministers. He called them the Valiant Sixty who carried the anointing of Quaker fire, not only in Britain, but soon across the world and especially into America. They were greatly persecuted because they, would, they, they, they had some very strong views about equality. Fox believed the equality of all people and taught his followers not to bow to dignitaries or even to take their hat off in greeting. This was important because if you didn't take your hat off to somebody who was in a superior position to you in society, uh, you, you could go to jail for it. And um, they, they had strong views on integrity and not lying. And at first, those that became Quakers were treated with great suspicion. Many of them were thrown into prison, beaten up and attacked. But soon after a while, people began to see that whatever you say about a Quaker you know they're going to be fair in their business and honest. 
And so people, after a while, after a few years, if people went into towns or villages and say they, they needed to, to have their shoes done or, or, or a tailor or they needed to go to a shop, they would often ask, is there any Quaker shops in town? And the reason being is although they might know that they're going to get the gospel preached to them when they go in that shop, they know they're going to be charged fairly and that whatever was given to them would be made in a high quality because these Quakers believed that, that, that they, well, they were Christian businessmen of the highest order. In fact, they were having such an effect in, in the business world that, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll, come to that, I'll come to that in a minute. So the Quakers began to grow, grow under Fox to 50,000 in Great Britain alone. And by 1690, the Quakers were the largest non-conformist group in Great Britain. So, not satisfied with this, Fox went across to Jamaica and Barbados and to the American colonies, preaching the gospel. Uh, in his wake, people like William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania, his grave is in the village next to mine, just outside London in, in Jordans. I'll often go and visit, visit there and visit the, uh, an old ancient Quaker hall. And the barn there is made from wood, from the original Mayflower. And, uh, um, and there's, there's, a, there's an ancient meeting house there, which, which is quite amazing to, 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 have, to have a look at. Em, uh, 7,000 Quakers emigrated to Britain, to Pennsylvania. The reason they emigrated was because they were being persecuted here. They wanted to go somewhere where they could be free. And Quaker influence, I haven't got time to go into it, has had a tremendous effect on on the United States of America because of their, their views of freedom and equality and freedom of religion. They, they, brought, they brought these things here. William Penn, this, this man who, who was a Quaker and founded Pennsylvania, he, he was bringing de, de, democracy, equality and peace and, and had a tremendous effect there. I've already mentioned the Quaker's influence in business, and I uh, want to have a look at some of the Quakers' business because uh, they did very well in business, as I've said. Because of their integrity, people began to trust them. They might not like them, but they knew they'd be treated well. And, be, and, and, and many of them did very well in banking because they were honest bankers. So here's some Quaker banks. Anybody uh, part of Lloyd's? Lloyd's was made by Quakers. Barclays was a Quaker bank. There's Quaker Oats. Makes sense, doesn't it? And Clark Shoes, Quakers. Great Quaker families founded on integrity, God, and, uh, and founded these great, these great institutions. Not only that, but does anybody like chocolate? Round trees. Well, here are some Quaker chocolate. And so... Here we are, we've got Cadbury's, Roundtree's, Terry's and Fry's. One of the great Quaker women was called Elizabeth Fry, who did amazing uh, work in uh, penal reform, and, um, and, and, and she was of the Fry family. And you say, well, why were Quakers into chocolates? Well, it all began because the Quakers saw that, that Britain was, going, was, was just going to destruction because of alcohol gin and, and drunkenness and all the effects that that was having on family life and the poverty that was coming out of drunkenness. And so the Quakers said, we need to give somebody a different substitute, something 
that they can drink that's not alcohol. And so they began, round trees, Cadbury's, fries, they began by making drinking chocolate. This is a bit further on in, in Quakers. Drinking chocolate. The first chocolate was not eaten in chocolate bars. The first chocolate was drinking chocolate. And so they produced this chocolate drink in order to give to families, in order for them to, to have an alternative to alcohol. And then, of course, out of that came um, some of these, these chocolate bars that we, that we so know. And so, so, so such, such things there. And, and when you look at the history of, of, of round trees and, uh, and Cadbury's, and, and, and you think of Bourneville, which is part of Cadbury's, and there was a, a, a whole, I mean, the way they treated their workers was just incredible. A whole town based for the workers of these chocolate factories, uh, and just, just such beautiful living quarters, you know, light years ahead of their respect of humankind. Well, I've only just given you a touch of the Quakers. There's so much more, and of course you can, it's only three pounds, this book, so you can read it. If you read it, it'll dot the I's, cross the T's a little bit in the history. I'm just here to give you a flavor. And um, interestingly, I said that I had gone to this local Quaker place in Jordans, an ancient place where William Penn was buried. And uh, I went to this ancient Quaker hall because like the, the seekers, uh, if you know anything about Quakers, they would sit in a room, everybody's equal, and uh, people can, can speak as they were moved by the spirit. Unfortunately, uh, in, in Quakerism, not all Quakers are as spirit-filled as, the, as they used to be. In fact, th- th- there's different types of Quakers that are here today. There are, there, there are still evangelical Quakers that believe in the word of God and the spirit of the living God. But there's also some very liberal Quakers that are around today that, that they're not even born again, to be honest. And when I went to this place, a lovely gentleman met me and spent time with me and took me around and showed me this ancient, hundreds and hundreds of years old, this ancient Quaker hall. And we spoke about William Penn. And, um, and then, uh, then he began to say to me, he began to say, well, of course you know that William Penn uh, didn't, ex- didn't accept the Bible as authoritative. I told him I was a minister. And uh, if, it, if it didn't fit in with reason, then, then they would throw it out. And I thought, what? But what's he telling me this for? What's he telling me? He said, of course, they were called Quakers um, because they used to shake a lot uh, in their meetings. They would get all worked up and shake a lot. And I thought, no, it was the Holy Spirit. And no, these men, uh, George Fox went around reading his Bible all the time. Reading his Bible. William Penn believed in the Bible. And I realized that, and and I didn't say anything because I didn't feel it was my place. I I didn't think it would do any good anyway, and he was being kind to me. So I, I just I just thought on that and went away and realized uh, what was what was the background. And so often in some in some, in a lot of the Quaker literature, they look back on the history of George Fox, and they rationalize it. So when he's going through those great deep prophetic things, they just call it depression because they don't believe in the supernatural. And so you've got to watch it because there's some books out there and they're written by people that they don't even believe in the supernatural. I mean, where is his book of miracles gone? Some people think that it was uh, conveniently got rid of because it was seen as embarrassing. But I've already mentioned there are some Quakers that love God and love the word and, and stay true to those roots. But we've just seen enough to see that how in the midst of formalism, bloodshed, God can pour out his spirit and raise up a new movement within a matter of a few years. A few years. 
Tens and tens of thousands of people getting saved, radically changed, a new movement within a, a generation. They were, they, they were, uh, people were complaining that they were taking over the business life of the nation. An incredible move of God and, had its, and has had its influence, not just that generation in the 1600s, but the 1700s. Powerful influence in Britain and America. 1800s, powerful influence in Britain and, uh, and America. It's amazing, as I've said, how when God moves in a generation, how that movement can send out ripples into the further generations, and often, not all the time, but often, very, very often, when God moves again, you can trace some sort of link or influence to the present move from the influences of the past movements, even if they may be centuries and centuries old. It's amazing. I suppose that's what we say when we talk about digging the wells, don't we? of our fathers. Maybe that's what we're attempting to do in some small way in these places, just digging a well, just making ourselves aware so that when God moves in his spirit again as we pray and are believing God for pours out his spirit, these things are going to become very important and very alive to us. And People like George Fox and, and, and the Quakers and how God moved in spirit. We're going to say God is moving powerfully in his spirit today and as he did then, as he did in other things. These, these, these things are going to come alive to us and the mistakes that they made, maybe we won't make them if we're aware of them. But the successes that they had, maybe as the Holy Spirit moves, maybe they will help us. Of course, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, and, and he doesn't have to do it exactly the way that he did, he did it before, but there are principles, aren't they? I mean, it's like the book of Acts, Will the book of Acts happen exactly like it was? Well, no, because we're not in a Jewish environment here. But there are principles in the book of Acts that will be seen in all revivals. And therefore, when we see genuine moves of God, we can look and say, look, there's that principle again. There's that principle again. There's how the Holy Spirit moved. There's how they responded. There's how the times were difficult. And then we can say, hey, now we can look at our lives. What are we going through? What are we facing as a church? What are the difficulties that we are in? We've seen how God dealt with times past, and that might help us to discern how God is dealing with things in time's presence. Well, God bless you. Next week, we have a special guest that's coming to us. He is the head of our Elim Missions. And uh, we talk about God doing things in a, in a generation. And Elim, the Elim Church, of which we're part, the Pentecostal churches, is 100 years old this year. We've been celebrating that. And you can get a book on it, actually, the 100 years. And what God did through George Jeffries, the founder of the, of the Elam Pentecostal Churches, and also who was the founder of this church. What God did through him and a few band of people was absolutely amazing in what he did, even in his own lifetime in Great Britain and the world. So we, 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 have, we have many, many encouragements and examples. And he's going to come and he's going to minister to, to us on the subject of going into all the world. So that's going to be exciting. Then we'll come right back and finish this series this month. God bless you.